0: And uh, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Job, the third chapter. And as I will be away a couple of Lord's Days, rather than continue our family series tonight, it seemed good to just conclude some time with Job, as we had considered the second chapter last week. And so please turn there, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word. I'll read the entire chapter, however, we will uh, not go verse by verse in the preaching of it that we might get a greater, just a sense of it today. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word, Job chapter 3. These are God's holy, inspired, and infallible words. After this, opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark. Let it look for light but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me Or why the breasts that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet, I should have slept, then had I been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth which built desolate places for themselves. Or with princes that had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or as in hidden untimely birth I had not been. As infants which never saw light. There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together, they hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures, which rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid, and whom God hath hedged in? For my sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. Amen. God bless the reading of this word. Let's pray. Our holy God, uh, we confess that most of us don't know what to do with agony such as Job's. And so we pray, O Lord, that as your minister comes to preach the word, that you would give your Holy Spirit that great comforter who comforts us when no other comforter can be found. We pray that he would fill the preaching of the word that we might receive not just the chastening of God, but also the comfort of the God of all comforts. And so we pray that you would bless thy people now with a sense of God, uh, that God is their friend if they are in Christ, that God does indeed have uh, his decree, which works all things for good for them that love God. Would you shoot that into their hearts today, as many have come even in great affliction? O Lord, we pray now that you would bless this preaching of the word, that Christ would be preached up, that you would give thy servant the tongue of the learned, that by Christ's spirit I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, spiritual despondency, or as it is sometimes called today, spiritual depression, often comes to those who are gravely afflicted in this life. One outcome of such despondency is a despair over living itself, over having life itself. And whether it is expressed outwardly or just in the heart, a bitterness and maybe even a cursing comes in our heart, in our affliction, that we were even ever born. Why was I born? Right? We question why the Almighty ever gave us an existence in the first place. If this is what my life is, why? As Job asked questions in this text, we ask similar questions. Why am I so afflicted? Is this really life? Is this really living? What purpose is there to living in agony? Would death not be better than this life that I now live in the flesh. And what Job demonstrates for us is that even Christians can fall under this kind of despondency. Whether it is because of physical affliction or it is uh, uh, a kind of soul trouble that we have or both as Job was facing. In fact, we saw that Job suffered as in every possible way as a man could suffer, save one, which was reserved for Christ, which was to suffer the wrath of God for his people. But in every way that the saints can suffer, Job suffered. And so we see that Christians can fall into a kind of despondency as Job demonstrates. But, and this is not to get the cart before the horse, I don't think, but beloved of God, Christian, with faith in the Lord, though you may despair even of life, You are never to lose hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are never to curse the life that God has given you and the providences that you find yourself under. But instead, we are called to cast ourselves entirely and totally on the Lord as our only hope and joy and comfort. You see, what Job is showing us, and we probably won't get very much further in the book unless the Lord changes the preaching schedule, but What Job demonstrates, and I'll put this before you here, is that when all other comforters are gone, when the comfort of our body is erased, when the comfort of our spouse is gone, when the comfort of our friends evaporates, when all is stripped from us, there is still a friend that clings closer than a brother. There's a friend that has made you and the day of your birth for himself, and it is this friend, Jesus Christ, your own redeemer, that you are called to cling to by faith. The Lord says he is in his rights to remove every other comfort from our life until we find comfort in him alone. And he will often do this. And this man suffered so that we might see it, that we would cling to God as our only comfort. Let Our church friends go, let our wife or husband go, let my body and its health go, let my children die, let all my goods perish, but so long as I have Christ, that is enough. And until we get that straight in our life, the Lord may well remove all other comforters until we find that we are despairing even of life as the apostle did, and yet We find that our trust has to be in the God that raises the dead. And so with that, our theme is that especially in affliction, we are to bless God for our life. Especially in affliction, we are to bless God for our life. And we'll divide our time into three heads. First is cursing our birth. Second, fears in our life. And third, desiring our death. First, cursing our birth. Well, a brief recap this evening. You remember and recall the great sort of cosmic conflict that Job had found himself a participant in, though he had yet to understand that. There was a testing of the devil's thesis, right? That a godly man who is stripped of everything will turn on God and curse God. That if God would strip a man, a godly man, of all of his comforts in this life, he would curse God and refuse to hold on to the Lord by faith. And for two chapters now, we have seen Job, astonishingly by faith, fervently cling to God. The man had lost everything, right? He had lost his children, he had lost his servants, he had lost his livestock, he had lost all his worldly possessions. He had lost his seed after him, his children. Right? In some way, then, you might say, his very name was being erased from the world. Then he lost his health in the last chapter. There's no more soundness in his bones from the toes of his feet to the tip of his head. He had become a putrefied husk of a man. And to top it all off, he had lost his wife, not to death, but worse. He had lost her heart. She asked him, why do you hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. She spat at him. You remember what the Hebrew was there, which was bless God and die. You who bless God all the time, why don't you just die? And his breath, he would say later on, had become strange to her. She had left him all alone to sit on a throne of ashes, to scratch his sores all by himself. No one's there to help him. No children, no servants, no wife, no health. This is what Job had become. A man with zero Earthly comforts. Then, at the end of the second chapter, we had read it last time, as Job was left desolate, his three friends came to him. What we have to understand is, though it may become hard to see this later on, their intentions were good and godly to come to him. We must recognize that about them. Godly men whose intention was found in the Holy Spirit's narration in Job 2.11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, everyone, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment to come together, and here is what they came to do, to mourn with him and to, these words are critical, comfort him. Their problem later on would be their misdiagnosis of Job. Right? They saw Job as a hypocrite, one without saving faith. And Job would have to say to them, as we think on this theme of comfort, miserable comforters are ye all, Job 16.2. Now their problem was not their theology, right? Their words are often very sound and orthodox and often are proof texts about God for the orthodox. And they understood a good and necessary practice that we often forget, that in affliction we are to search our hearts for unrepentant sin. That is not a problem. That's something that's necessary for us when we are afflicted. But what they did not understand is unrepentant sin is not the only reason that the Almighty has to chasten us. They were terrible counselors in that, as many in the church are. God often sends trials of faith. God often purges dross in our heart that we didn't even know was there. So that under the furnace of affliction, we do see there are sins in the heart that I was unaware of. And He might even, as He once said, as Jesus Christ once said, give us affliction solely to glorify His name when He makes good arise out of affliction. Even as Joseph found out, right? Or Jesus Christ, our own Lord, knew it in His affliction. That what men had meant for evil, God had meant ultimately for good. And if we spend... More time in Job someday, we might consider these other holy ends of the Lord. But all that aside, his friends do well at first for a week. For seven days and seven nights, his friends sat in silence, mourned with him, and they saw that Job's grief was very great. And it's not they who speak first. Right? They honor this commitment to give him comfort. After the week of silent and, gr- and grief, Job speaks, and really it is his words in the very first verse that is the turning point for the rest of the book, and it's the catalyst for his three friends, three cycles of contention that will follow afterward, and it will even be the catalyst for God's own rebuke of Job out of the whirlwind, and his first words, and you might think of this, uh, these are the words of the same man of the prior two chapters in verse 1. After this, Job opened, his, after this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day, meaning the day of his birth. Is this Job, the man who said, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Is this Job who had held fast to his integrity and had said, what shall we not receive good and as well as evil from the Lord? Yes, this is the same man. This is the same godly man. It's not another man that has entered the scene. Yes, he does not curse God as the devil had hoped. You wonder if the devil is hanging on every word, especially after he opens his mouth to curse. But what Job had done was not good. It was sinful what the man had done, no doubt about it. You cannot excuse it. However, we are called to understand it. How can a man called the most righteous man on the earth begin to curse the day of his birth. And then even, you heard it in the reading, these dark utterances that follow. So dark. Was God wrong about Job? Was Job truly a hypocrite? Was the devil right? No. First thing that we note is that the best of saints, even with their hope in Christ, are still sinners. And there's much dross in us. You cannot be too censorious of Job. You think of what the man endured, right? For seven days and seven nights, in excruciating, mind-bending pain, pain that can addle the mind and draw out the worst in our corrupted flesh's sinful thoughts. For seven days and seven nights, the very last words anyone had spoken to him were, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. What does that do to a man to have that echo in your, in your heart and your mind as you're in such pain that the only thing you can do is scratch at yourself with uh, broken pottery thinking on the names of all the children that have died, the wife that has spat in your face and walked away from you, the servants and their families, the livestock and all that he had. One mistake would be to consider Job and immediately rush to find fault in him rather than think what is it telling me about myself if I were in Job's shoes or you were in Job's shoes. Men and women, we are likely half as godly as Job, if that. You and I would likely say and think far worse than he did. So what you and I must do is look at Job in this chapter and say to ourselves, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And if you and I are ever called to counsel someone in great affliction and grief, we need to remember that too. That sometimes the agony of affliction will make them say and do things that are sinful. And that's not to excuse them, but it is to understand them. As Job's own counselors did not. One final matter for poetry before we get further into the chapter is that after verse, uh, for context, after verse two, the book is going to shift from prose to poetry. And oftentimes your Bible will will show you that until its final chapter. And that presents a few difficulties for the translators. They try to smooth it over. You'll notice if you're in the authorized version, a lot of times you'll find later on a lot of italicized words, um, much more sometimes than other books of the Bible. That's to aid us as English speakers to smooth out what is implied by the Hebrew poetry. Anyhow, with that then said, Job curses the day he was born. Uh, Children, you might hear your friends say something like this. I wish I was never born. I wish I was never born. Job does something like that. And that is something we must never say. Never, ever say that. No matter how hard our life is under the sun, we must remember that our life came from God above. And all that God does is good. And the believer especially knows that they were made for Jesus himself. To dwell with him as we thought on it in Psalm 42 and in other texts recently. To dwell with him forever in God's house, as you heard in the transfiguration. And so boys and girls, as hard as your life ever will get in this life, never ever say, I wish I was never born. You need to repent of that thinking. That's actually sinful. The day of your birth believer, your birthday, I do believe should be marked out in some way. Soberly, with sobriety, with thanks to God, with thanks to our mother and our father. The problem with much of our celebrations of birthdays today is our society is godless. And it has become a celebration of self. Right? Because we think here, if the, if the proper duty, if the duty, we just think about the way we handle the word of God. Let me just put it this way before I get into society. Is if Job sinned in cursing the day of his birth, what is his duty that is required of him? to bless the day of his birth, right? That's as simply as you can say, you are to mark out the day of your birth and to bless the Lord for it. Now, the problem with birthdays in our society is often they become a celebration of self rather than a glorification of God. There is no thought of God in most birthdays. And here is the thing, and I think this is necessary, parents. This is not our family series, but I think it'll help you in raising children. The more that you think of your birthday as being all about you, And the less that you find it is a day to glorify God, the more despondent you will be and your children will be when life does not go the way you imagine it ought to. If the day of my birth is all about my hopes and dreams and desires, then of course, when things go, in my estimation anyway, horribly wrong, of course I'm going to be bitter. Parents, and I would say, don't indulge your children on their birthdays or yourself either, I suppose, It's fine to have a celebration and and modest gifts and friends and everything else. However, you are not to teach that your children are princes and princesses of the world, right? That their life is all about them and not God. But rather, their honor is found in being a covenant child that knows Christ. If they will see their birth in relation to God's providence and purpose for them, that the gospel promise my son or my daughter is to you as well as to me, That will be a great bulwark against spiritual depression later in life. You see, the more that their life becomes about them on the day of their birth, the less they will be able to weather life's Storms, when their estate fails, when their health is gone, when the presents no longer come to them, and the friends who came to all the birthday parties leave them all alone, they will remember, oh, but I was made for Christ. That is the aim of my life. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Rather than say with bitterness, where is everything I deserve? Christian, then, on your birthday, make your meditation sweet about Christ. You need to, on the day of your birth, celebrate God's mercies to you. You remember things like this, right? Even as we think of the doctrine of man, you say, oh God, I was conceived in sin. And yet, I know Christ, my Savior, was given to me from before I was born. God has made me, and God has made me for himself to enjoy him forever. I was made for communion with God, and what better gift is there than that? These are blessed and joyful thoughts to have on the day of your birth. Rather than the other way to go, right, is as you get older the person who has thought that their birthday was all about themselves, the older man or woman will very often start to face regrets. Right? You hear the midlife crisis, don't you? You hear of men and women at the end of their life just looking back and saying, my life was nothing like I had imagined it to be. Why do they face that despondency? Because they did not think their life was for God and from God. And if you think on your life in the in those terms being for being made for God until be lived for God then you won't have you might regret sins right forgiven by the blood of Christ sure but you will not regret whatever estate you are in knowing this was your good God's providence to you you don't say you will not say i'm not accomplished what i had hoped i would have when i was 20 years old I don't regret my marriage. Is not what I had hoped it would be. On and on it goes. Your regret's over, and you hear about this today. My bucket list, uh, list is barely scratched, right? That's all folly, friends. Instead, what has the Lord said? But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Jeremiah nine twenty four. That is your glory. You know, here's the thing, Christian, if you're a believer for eternity in heavenly glory, you will bless God that you were born. You will bless God every day and every night or however time is marked out. You will bless God for your birth as you experience glory all about you. The Lamb in the midst of the throne showering His love upon you. God being the light of that place and His glory enveloping you. The saints all together enjoying eternal communion with you. And you will truly know that your afflictions in life had worked to far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. Second Corinthians 4. And all eternity you will say with joy, My affliction had been oh so good for me. Will you have a thought in glory of cursing the day of your birth or blessing it? What will it be? You see, what's necessary for us in affliction is to often think on glory, friends. That's why even the book itself, Job, ends with a portrait of glory. And that's why the book of books, the Bible, ends with a portrait of glory. When Job is completely restored and has even more than he had before the trial, With the words, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. You might understand why James wrote, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. The believer then, this this goes beyond this book, but it's helpful. The believer takes glory and brings it into this life. You see, you must take all the words that you will say in glory, how blessed it is that I was born, and you bring them into your present distress, beloved of God. That is a use for knowing what glory is like, that we would never say anything contrary on this, in this life that we wouldn't say for eternity. And meditations on glory then are a great barrier to despair in life, Christian. So never do what Job did, no matter how hard life is. Never curse the day of your birth. And Job vividly curses his birthday in verses 3 to 12. As I've said, we can't go verse to verse, but uh, consider how dark his curses are. Literally dark. He said, may that day perish. May the light of it be turned to blackness. Even as you think of this, the day was turned to night at Christ's crucifixion. When God's wrath was poured out upon him, it's a picture of a day full of vengeance. But Job said, when others see his birthday on the calendar, let him curse and mourn that day. May not even the stars shine on my birthday. May it be black as blackest night. May it not be joined unto the days of the year. In other words, purge it from the calendar entirely. He he wants his day to be marked off by blackness as it rolls around each year. And then he asked, why was my mother's womb not closed? Why died I not from the womb? In other words, why was I born? Why was I not? This shocks you. Why was I not a stillborn? And, you know, this is where we're starting to see that when we sin, we sin against God and neighbor, right? He's forgetting all about his own mother and her travails, right? He forgot likely that this man was the joy of his mother after she bore him in pain. Jesus said, a woman when she is in travail hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. John sixteen twenty one. You who are mothers know this. You who are pregnant mothers will know this. It's hard. Wouldn't it be hard for you to hear that your son or daughter cursed the day of their birth? and said, I wish my mom had a stillborn, that I had died in her womb. And he asked, why did my mother show me natural affection to nurse me on her breast? You know, these are terrible things, friends, right? In our misery then, we are often ready to despise not just God, but others. Even our mother, and we become self-focused whenever we say, woe is me we become selfish and we become self-centered, right? We don't even think of what we are saying. Do I truly want my mother to have had a stillborn? Do I truly want my mother to have such hardness of heart that she wouldn't nurse me, that I would die? So as great as his misery was, we cannot excuse Job for any of this. Now, if we have seen the shadow of Christ over Job in the first two chapters, now we understand why it was only a shadow and not the substance You think of Christ. Did he ever curse the day of his birth? Even with all of his agony, even with all of his distress, even when the plowers plowed his back, even when the day turned to night on the cross, he blessed God and he blessed his own mother, right? You think of what he was doing on the cross. He was blessing his own mother, sending her to live with John, telling John to care for her. And so it is our Savior, not Job, who shows the way in distress. But I think even in our distress, all of us must hear the words of Romans 9:20 20 through 21, as we consider our life and how it might not be what we had hoped for or wanted. Romans 9, 20, 21. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Now, being reformed, we often apply that solely to the distinction between the elect and the reprobate. However, the moral truth of it must apply and be turned onto the circumstances of our life. Never asking the Almighty in a sinful way, why hast thou made me thus? That's what Job is asking. Why was I even made if this is my life? If it is the potter's right to make some reprobate, it is the potter's right to afflict his elect, knowing that he afflicts us for our own good. Well, as we're only able to glean a few things from that chap- this chapter today, we'll ha- move on to our second head now, fears in our life. Once again, as been the pattern so far, these next two headings will be briefer as we've laid some of the foundation. Now, before we consider Job's longing for death, the end of our chapter, I think, reveals something of his life that felt unsettled. He seems to have lived with fear in his life. Verses 25 and 26, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. seems as though Job was disquieted in his life, even in his prosperity. In the first chapter, you saw he had feared for his children's souls, And his fears had come alive. They had all perished when the wind had blown down the house when they feasted. And he thought perhaps they had all cursed God in their hearts and the Lord had judged them. And maybe he had other fears, fears over his health given his current condition. Maybe fears that his wife's faith was not in Jehovah as his was. And how many spouses have had that fear of their spouse. Maybe fears that he could not maintain his position as the greatest man of the East. You know, it's interesting. As you think on the wealthy and the poor, the wealthy are often filled with the fear of loss, while the poor, strangely, are often filled with the hope of wealth, right? It's very interesting that rich men often fear loss. But most of all, we have to think that his fear was that the Lord would chasten him over unrepentant sin. You know, this seems to be the man's, you know, Walk with the Lord. He had offered sacrifices day and night. You saw that later on you might remember this mem- very memorably in Job 31. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Right? He is trying his very best to walk in godliness and holiness. And he had feared that he would provoke the Almighty with his sinful conduct. Now this is on some level the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of our wisdom. He did not want to provoke the Lord with sin, for he knows that he might be chastened by it or for it. But now you have to understand his comfort is being evaporated, right? The man is bewildered. I walked as blamelessly as I possibly could. Why am I being chastened? You know, you almost think he has spent seven days and seven nights maybe rolling around in his mind and his heart. What sin have I committed that the Almighty would do this thing to me? Right? And his his wife's last words echoing in his soul. Why dost thou hold fast to thine integrity? And bitterness is entering the heart. The devil's temptation finding a bit of purchase in his soul. The the words of Malachi's days intruding in his soul. It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And he said, yet trouble came. I did what I could. So if Job's friends misdiagnose him, Job misdiagnoses providence before they do. For it is not the only reason the Lord brings calamity upon us is for our own sin. And I also have to say this, if the only reason you're going to live in holiness and righteousness is to stave off calamity, that is not the primary purpose for walking in holiness, as you heard last time. To walk righteously and blamelessly before the Lord, repenting of sin and seeking to walk in holiness is our God-given duty and should be our delight. Right? We don't... Walk around in holiness because we fear that the hammer of God is going to squash us like a bug, people of God. That's a good, healthy fear to have that the Lord might chasten us, as Hebrews 12 says. But holiness is its own delight. The Lord Jesus Christ lived righteously and holy, living, not because he feared the chastening of the Lord. Right? He would be chastened for our sin, not his. And you think of our Savior, right? If you want to say that the only reason calamity comes on a man is because of unrepentant sin. You think of our Savior. You know, He knew that righteous living under the sun comes with grief and distress. He had a cup to drink of God's wrath. He had thorns that he took upon his brow. He had no place to lay his own head for his sin. No, for our sin. And if you live life christian walking on eggshells so to speak never settled in your soul because you fear what god might do what a low view of god is yours friend you know you walk in holiness not because of retributive fear of the almighty but because you know as we heard a few at the end of the communion season in the thanksgiving service because you desire the love of complacency of the almighty that you delight to hear the well-done, good and faithful servant, right? To abide in his love, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. That is the positive motive for keeping them. You, you are glad that the Lord delights in you. The secondary motive is really that he will chasten me if I get out of line. But the primary is, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, John fifteen ten. And knowing that even when he chastens us, we will take that affliction because he chastens us out of love as a father that loves his son. Perfect love then casts out unsettled fear that we might have in life, replacing it with a filial, reverent fear of love for God. But it seems like Job lived his life under strain and stress, and that made him even more ready to despair that he was ever born and ever lived. You know, and this is maybe, again, part of the glory of this book, right? What did the man seem to not know, even as we have heard from heaven in the first two chapters, that God delighted in Job, didn't he? Is that not why he virtually boasts of Job to Satan, right? Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan spitefully said, Well, you have put a hedge around him, O God. And I don't have time to consider it, but here, in a way, you see that Job doesn't understand how God has been for him. In in verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? He doesn't understand that God had hedged him in in safety all this time. And he misunderstands what the Almighty has done. Right? So, We don't understand what God thinks of us, though if we are in Christ, we do know what God thinks of us. Remember, because if we are in the beloved son, he says through Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased to his children. Christian, you need to know that for yourself, that God cares for you. He hedges you in and he has put a boundary over what Satan and and the afflictions of this world can do to you. You cannot see it, maybe. You cannot perceive it, perhaps. But by faith, you need to take up the first chapter of the book and see how God thought on Job and how Job was now despising what he did not know God had done for him all the days of his life. I think we will be astonished when we get to glory, when we see what God had done for us. And we will have to say how righteous the Lord has been and how foolish we have been in the days of our adversity to never recognize these things. Was the 23rd Psalm not true of Job, especially when we look at the first chapter, that goodness and mercy had followed Job all the days of his life? And yet Job did not see it after a week of agony. But Job did not suffer in vain, did he, right? God gave you this man's travails and given you this book so you might see it for yourself, believer. So see it, and may that be a hedge over your own heart, especially as we consider our last heading, which is desiring our death. In verses 21 through 23, it's hard to read these things. Job desires his death, and he is frustrated that death has not come. Which long for death, but it cometh not. See that aching desire? And dig for it more than for hid treasures, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? Now, we hadn't considered the lofty views of the grave earlier in the chapter too much. But Job had said that one he believed would find rest in the grave, and it was far better than living his life. But even in these two verses, you find this intense craving he has for death. So vividly and poetically, he said he would dig for death more than for hidden treasure. And you think of what the Lord Jesus Christ said of treasure hidden field, right? This is what the kingdom of God is meant to be, not death not death, this kind of anguish is really hard to understand in some ways for those of us in good health, that death might become your greatest treasure on earth. And that's something, friends. You know, this kind of intense despair and anguish comes even to the godly man or woman. Even the Apostle Paul, right, at one point said that life had become a thing of despair to him. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Second Corinthians 1 8. Now the, the apostle cannot be chastened for his words, but Job can be chastened for his. What are we to make of that? What is the difference between these two men? Paul saw why he was made to despair of his own life and his own strength. That's the difference. Paul understood because not a verse goes by before he says, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust he will yet deliver us. He was made to despair of his own life and of his own self. Why? That he would put all of his trust in God. And the man knew it that I despair of my life so that all of my trust would be in God, the very God that raises the dead. Now, there's a whole sermon for you, isn't it? That if my body is in shambles, if my life is pressed above measure beyond my strength, I trust that I will live eternally with God who will deliver my body from the dead. Right? So my despair of life was to remember there is a resurrection coming. There will be eternal life that I must trust the very God who will raise this dead body. And I think on this, this is this not why we worship on the Lord's day? The day Christ was raised from the dead to remember such things when we are in distress, when we worship beloved, even as our strength fails us. That we must not trust in God, but as I praise God on the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, the day Christ was raised, that I am to trust that as Christ is raised from the dead, though his body was in the grave for three days, and though it was brutally mutilated, more than mine will ever be, I will live forever and be raised even as he is. So the question comes again. Was Job a hypocrite in all this? And was the devil right about Job? And the answer is no. Job was not fully sanctified. He sinned. He had this corruption in him. But even that corruption, and we bless the Lord for this, could not and would not quench Job, who was a smoking flax at this time. Right? Because later on, I thought on this, it is Job who first came up with the apostles' equation, wasn't he? Right. What did he say later on? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Job 13, 15 through 16. And then in Job 19, you marry these texts together. Come those immortal words before the apostle ever drew breath or nursed at his mother's breast. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skins wor- my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. What are those texts but what the apostle so smartly and neatly said, that we should not trust in ourselves, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and not deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. What is that? But I know my Redeemer lives and I will see him with my own eyes and in my own flesh. And so what is wonderful about Job is he shows us that the child of God who is about to be broken as a bruised reed, about to be quenched as a smoking flax, will never have their faith totally broken or quenched. In the end, faith given by Christ and nourished by Christ will gain the victory in this life and lead them into the life to come. And you must believe that, believer. Faith gets the victory. That the promise, have you forgotten the promise given to you by your Savior who was once broken for you? A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment into victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Will you look at the book of Job and call your Savior a liar? Do you think it was Job who persevered throughout the entirety of the book? Or was it Christ who had his hold on him? It was Christ who did not break him. It was Christ who did not quench him. Now that's the difference between a soul that despairs of life and one that seeks suicide as the way out, which Job did not do, by the way. He did not seek to end his life in his despair, though he did wish his life was at an end. He didn't take the knife to plunge it in the heart. You know, the one that despairs of life in a godly way, and I'm not saying that all who commit suicide are lost. That's not what I'm saying at all. But one who despires of life in a godly way as Paul or as Job, um, they are really longing for Christ. Right? I know my Redeemer lives, that I should not trust in myself, but the God who raises the dead. And they understand, whether they understand it today or another day, that they are to remain on the earth until God himself, the Lord Jesus, calls them to glory. What did Paul say in Philippians 1? For me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he says, in a way, I long for death. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart. See, that's a desire for death in a good way. And to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. If nothing else, will you not see it was more needful for us, beloved, that Job live. We have his words. We have the word of God that shows the end of Job's life. Uh, blessed as it is. And Job would be with Christ soon enough. And so when you're in affliction, when you are despondent or, as the world calls it, depressed, don't forget this, believer. You will see Christ soon enough. For now, it is more necessary for God's people that you live. You have a purpose for your life given by God, and you need to seek the Lord for it. And the answer, do you think that this is the answer when you go to the Almighty? You know what? Actually, there is no purpose in your life. Do you think that is ever going to be what the Almighty will say? No. There is a purpose. You must believe it. And so, though Job stumbled and though he will be rebuked out of the whirlwind by God later on, the devil's thesis that the godly man will break and curse God was not proven true. What Job shows us is that there is much sin left in our heart and in our flesh, sin that needs purging and removal by the furnace of affliction. The secrets of his heart are being revealed, aren't they? The bitterness inside, the fears, they started to float to the surface, so to speak, once the heat was turned up in his life. The devil, though, thought that the furnace of affliction was being applied to Job as a blowtorch, that Job's faith would wither away, and that he would curse God and die. But instead, what is happening and you are seeing it is that the blowtorch of affliction was heating Job up to reveal the impurities in the man that would come to the surface of his heart instead of being buried and hidden away from sight. What is the only way that God could have revealed these things to Job that he is not as holy as he might have thought? It is through this furnace of affliction and it is for his good. And why does the Lord reveal it? Just so that he may mock you and laugh at you. No, that the Lord would remove it from you. As he will do for all of you who believe. Those in heaven saved by the blood of Christ, received by faith alone. They will never curse the day of their birth. And we praise God for this. Because you will see what God had done all the days of your life. As he shows you the tapestry of providence. This is why you suffered that affliction. That is what I had to do in your life in order to purge you of that thing. But on the other hand, those who are in hell because they never fled to the Redeemer, they will curse the day of their birth forever. What did Jesus say of Judas? It had been good for that man if he had never been born. So... Even as you heard this morning, why face an eternity of cursing, cursing the Almighty and cursing the day you were born? And because you will not do anything but curse God in hell, hell will be eternity for you because you will never bless God. So why don't you receive Christ by faith and be saved from that eternal torment forever? plea to Christ, even as you heard it in our call to worship, those wonderful words. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Ye come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me. Christ speaks, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul will live. Isn't this what Jesus said? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why suffer eternally and curse the day of your birth? Why not bless the Lord that you were born and made for him? Now, believer, you need to take heart because most of us don't take affliction well. Even if you had stumbled in affliction and been bitter, I want you to remember how the Lord will remember this man, Job, who had cursed the day of his birth in James 5. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. You know, there is not a single mention in the New Testament of the Lord rebuking Job out of the whirlwind. Why? Because in Christ, all of his shame and all of our shame is forever taken away. He says, their sins and their iniquities will I what? Remember no more. Isn't that beautiful? To think that in glory, the Lord will not be chastising Job and he will not be chastising you and me. He will not say, Job, why did you ever curse the day of your birth when it is so glorious here? And he will not continue to chasten him like that. The chastening is over for Job today. And all he has is the blessedness of eternal life. His sins and iniquities are remembered no more because the Lord Jesus Christ has taken them away. You think who did it? The man of sorrows who sorrowed and was more acquainted with grief than any other man, including Job himself, who suffered for Job and for you believer more than Job or any other saint will suffer. He has taken away all our iniquity such that God only remembers the graces that he has given us. Hang on to that thought as you consider your conduct in affliction, and may the goodness of God then lead you to repentance and faith and not bitterness and cursing. We'll have to leave Job there for tonight. May God bless his word to us. Amen. Please rise for prayer of Abel. Oh Lord, our God, what are we to do with such words as these? Help us to never be bitter in our heart and ask, why was I made so? Why was I made so, or why was I made so to suffer affliction? Help us to never curse the day of our birth, but to bless you, O God, that if we are those who glory, that we know thee, O Lord, that we know that you are God and you have given Christ to us, that we would bless our birthday, all the days of our life, that we would bless you, Lord, that our mother did give us birth and that we were not stillborns and that we did nurse at our mother's breast and that the day was not night on the day we were born and that men did not wail that we were born, but instead blessed God for us. Help us to rejoice in the day of our birth, especially as we know Christ. Father, remove bitterness in trials from us and help us to repent that we would ever, ever, be bitter towards our God in affliction. Help us to see what you are doing in our life. Help us to turn from our uh, unrepentant sin. Help us as well to understand that you are purging dross from us and that ultimately it is the great refiner who has the fire and furnace of affliction to burn away all the impurities so that we would know our God better and that we would walk before him in greater holiness and love and joy that we would abide in his love. Help us to desire holiness that we would desire to abide in the love of Christ. We ask this now. Bless thy people in Jesus' name. Amen.